So when you think of uh, the letter of the Ephesians, what first impressions do you have? I don't want to spend a whole lot of time gathering a whole lot of first impressions, but just really big, big ideas or what you think of when you think of the book of Ephesians, thoughts, what comes to mind, what seems familiar or not familiar, doctrine and practice, which is very much like Romans that way, right, where the first three chapters are doctrine, the next three chapters are practice, um, I don't agree with anybody on everything, including myself, uh, but I really like Eugene Peterson. I think he's an excellent writer. He's a real wordsmith in what he's able to write. He, I think it, I can't remember how old he was when he wrote a book called Practicing Resurrection. It's on the book of Ephesians, but it's kind of loosely based. It's not a, it's not a strict commentary. But I found it surprising that in the book he starts off with chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, I think he'll go back. I don't know how much time I'll have to read that book because I've got so many possibilities. But he starts off at chapter 4, verse 1, because that, he would say, is the pivot point or the hinge for all of the book. Uh, As you've received Christ, so walk in him. I don't know if that's Colossians or Ephesians, but it's something similar to chapter 4 and verse 1, where it kind of builds on everything I've just said and everything I'm about to say. And I thought that was intriguing. Uh, He's just such a good writer. Anybody else? First impression for Ephesians? Uh, uh, Henry. The Armor of God. That's uh, probably if you've been through Sunday school or a VBS, somewhere along the line, you did the Armor of God. Uh, That's usually a pretty popular theme in in Ephesians chapter 6. So here's what... Here's the interesting thing for today, starting off with Ephesians, is to really start off in Ephesians well, you need to talk about Ephesus. So today, really, we're talking about Ephesus more than we're talking about Ephesians. So here's a map of the Mediterranean world. Jerusalem is way down here. That's where uh, Jesus was crucified and resurrected. That's where Christianity started. And then Ephesus is a city right here in what is a Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. Uh, This city of Ephesus is one of the five largest cities in the the Roman Empire. The other four would be Rome, Corinth, Antioch, which is where Paul and Barnabas were commissioned out of. That's the big home church, a mixture of probably mostly Gentiles, but Jews as well. They commissioned the first missionary journey, and then Alexandria down in Egypt. Those are the five biggest cities at this time. Ephesus is, some some commentators suggest, number three, number four, or maybe number five, but roughly a quarter of a million people is what is believed, 250,000 people in Ephesus. Uh, It was a free city by Roman standards in that they were self-governing. Uh, They didn't require uh, Roman law imposed upon them. They were friendly with the empire. Uh, They got along with the empire. So Ephesus is... And four of those cities are all mentioned in in the book of Acts. Antioch, Corinth, then Ephesus, finally Rome. Alexandria is not mentioned in Acts. But those are the five largest cities at the time, Ephesus being one. It kind of... I know I've read some allusions to the fact that what kind of a church planter or what kind of a strategy did Paul have? You might get out of this 
that Paul saw great value in taking the gospel to population centers so that it could go out from there. Uh, that's not, neither right nor wrong. It's neither the, the best way or not the best way, but it seems to be kind of a practice that Paul uh, often adopted in taking the gospel to. He spent a lot of time in Corinth. He spent even more time in Ephesus. He spent quite a bit of time in Rome, but it wasn't exactly of his own doing. And then a lot of time in Antioch as well. What Ephesus is best known for, though, is the temple worship uh, regarding the goddess Diana or Artemis. Uh, Diana would be Greek, Artemis would be Rome. Uh, It was the largest Greek temple of the world ever built. Uh, I think it had, make sure I get this right, it had 127 white marble columns each one 62 foot high. That's not the actual temple, that's a representation based upon the ruins that they have. So it was, that was the goddess of Ephesus. It was, uh, it was um, not a, what would, it was lewd. The worship involved would be lewd, it would be immoral. Uh, it was a, a god of fertility, uh, the god of Diana. Ephesus was a melting pot of a city. There were lots of nationalities there. It was on, as you might imagine, quite a cultural center. So lots of gods were worshipped. But this was number one. And nobody spoke poorly of Diana. It was one of the uh, seven wonders of the world at that time. So people from all over the Mediterranean world, if you went on vacation, one of the sites you probably had on your bucket list was to see this particular temple. It was so magnificent and out of the ordinary. And uh, Paul has some run-ins with uh, the worshipers of the god, goddess Diana. So, providing a one-week introduction to Ephesus, when I first did my notes, I said, it's going to be challenging. I've got the word difficult there now. I might even go with impossible. I'm not sure if I can do Ephesus in one week. I, I think I can based upon we're doing pretty good on time. I'll throw it open for some comments and questions toward the end. But this is all laying groundwork for where we're going to be when we're actually in the letter to the Ephesians, understanding something about Ephesus. The reason why it's so challenging is because there's more snapshots of Ephesus in the New Testament than probably any other city slash church uh, that we have. You could argue Jerusalem would actually be more than Ephesus, especially if you throw in Romans and you've got a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Uh, But other than that, you've got a lot of snapshots of Ephesus in Scripture covering a period of 40-plus years. So the snapshots look something like this. The first snapshot is, and these years, by the way, are approximate. I could be off a year or two. There's no 100% consensus among Bible scholars. It was exactly this year. Give or take a year. This is what I'm going with. On Paul's second missionary journey, he has a brief stop at Ephesus. That's the first time we read of Ephesus in Scripture. Then in 54 to 56, on Paul's third missionary journey, Paul spends upwards of three years in Ephesus, two and a half Three years, kind of depending on how you look at it. But he spends a lot of time on his third missionary journey. In A.D. 60 or 61, Paul writes his letter to the Ephesian church, which is what we're about to do. So, 
As we go through the book of Ephesians, we know Paul has already been there three years. He's writing with all of that in his background, with all of that already established. Out of that comes this letter in roughly 60 or 61 A.D. In 62, maybe it's 63, maybe it's 64, Paul writes to Timothy. And Timothy is at Ephesus. Timothy is a pastor at Ephesus. So Paul writes to Timothy his letter. And because Timothy's at Ephesus and it's named, we have another reference to Ephesus. The last reference to Ephesus comes 30 years or so after that. If you go with a later date for Revelation, which I do. If Revelation was written in 95 or 96, the Apostle John records Christ's message to seven churches. Seven churches in Asia. The first of those churches is the church at Ephesus. And so you've got this, this timeline, these snapshots of what is happening at Ephesus. It's a great case study. Sometimes, in fact, probably mostly in Scripture, you have case studies of individuals. You can look at their life, how they started, how things progressed, and how they ended up. You kind of you see somebody's life over a course of so many years. But in this case, it's the entire church at Ephesus. You get a glimpse what they're like now and here and here and here. And all along the way, the progress or the lack thereof that is taking place in Ephesus. So let's start with 52. You're going to be in Acts chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 927. And this is probably a good time to both put in a plug for Sunday school as well as a disclaimer that uh, I can't spend, you know, I'm making quick references to the book of Acts and I'm probably raising more questions than I'm answering and, and I understand that. Downstairs in Sunday school hour, we spend a lot more time delving into the possibilities and the nuances and, and what that might actually look like and To the extent that you understand that, you will be more benefited by the Passover, the quick overview that I'm doing this morning in in parts of Acts. So in Acts chapter 18, what you're going to find is in the first 17 verses, Paul is conducting ministry in Corinth, which is also one of the five largest cities in the Roman Empire. And Paul will spend about a year and a half in Corinth. And after spending about a year and a half there, there's an uprising against him, which goes against the Jews that are opposing him. It's squashed. And so Paul, uh, having survived that, leaves Corinth, and Paul wants to go from Corinth and return to his home church in Antioch. He will do that by way of Centria. That's our first reference then of Ephesus. Uh, He will wind up in Antioch. Uh, He doesn't get there exactly like right away, but he'll make his way up to Antioch. That's all that happens in in Acts chapter 18. I want to pick up with reading, say, in verse 18. So this is after Paul leaves Corinth. It goes like this. Acts 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, who had joined him in Corinth. At Centria, he had cut off his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them, that would be Priscilla and Aquila, 
he left them in Ephesus. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So the map looks something like this. Paul had started off this missionary journey from Antioch. He revisited uh, the area of Galatia where he spent his first missionary journey. And then he he picked up Timothy in Lystra for the second journey. He travels up through what would be modern-day Turkey, crosses from Troas to Neapolis, plants a church at Philippi where he was imprisoned. You remember the Philippian jailer. Uh, He plants a church in uh, Thessalonica. He plants a church in Berea. And then he makes his way down to Athens. Remember in Acts chapter chapter 17, he's at Mars Hill and he's debating with the philosophers of the day. And uh, I see that you have a an altar to an unknown God, and let me tell you about that unknown God. That happened in Athens. After Athens, he goes to Corinth, where he spends a year and a half. When he leaves Corinth, the next little town down is Centria, from which he sets sail, goes over to Ephesus, where he briefly reasons in the synagogue, but says, I can't stay, I'm going to leave Priscilla and Aquila with you. So they stay, And then Paul makes his way back all the way down. He's going to go eventually wind up back in Antioch. That's the second missionary journey. Now let's go to the third missionary journey. The third missionary journey takes place in, uh, well, he spends three years in Ephesus, 54 to 56. We're going to read about this. I'm going to pick it up at 18, chapter 18, verse 23. So in 22, he set sail from Ephesus. 20, or uh, 21, he set sail from Ephesus. 22, when he'd landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then they went down to Antioch. After spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. That little clause, he departed and went, is his third missionary journey. It doesn't come with all the fanfare, the first two. The first two uh, missionary journeys, they're very clear when they start, who's going and where they're going, how they're being sent. They're, you know, practically these new chapter headings. But the third missionary journey is just this little clause. After spending some time there, he departed and went on his third missionary journey. So on this third missionary journey, he revisits now for the third time the churches of Galatia. He's going to work his way over to the city of Ephesus, where he will spend close to three years. And it reads like this. This is uh, verse 24. Now a Jew, this is actually before he gets to Ephesus. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria... So actually it is, Alexandria is named in Acts. I take back what I said earlier. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had, <clears throat> he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
And he began to speak boldly in the temple. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they were left by Paul, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, Achaia is the province where Corinth is located, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So we're introduced to this, this character of Apollos. We've, we're going to have two back-to-back stories of people who have a certain amount of information, but it's not complete information. And so this man, Apollos, who's eloquent in scripture and who accurately teaches the way of Jesus. So he's acquainted with Jesus. He's acquainted with his birth. He's acquainted with his life. He's acquainted with his death. I think he's acquainted with his resurrection. What he's not acquainted with is anything other than the baptism of John, which means he's not acquainted with what? I think it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happened at Pentecost. He's not acquainted with that. And so Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and bring him up to date as to what all the apostles are teaching and know that he doesn't quite yet know. And then he wants to go from Ephesus, he wants to sail over to Corinth to teach. So Paul has not met Apollos. Apollos goes to Corinth. And what does he do in Corinth? Paul plants Apollos' waters. So Apollos is pouring into the believers, the church at Corinth, what had already been started and planted by Paul. But it will also result in some division because Paul will later write... Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. And others are saying, well, we like Apollos. And then others are saying, well, we're all about, we're, we're all about Peter. And some are saying, all these divisions are horrible. We're just Christians. We're just of Christ. But each one is divisive in their own way. That's what's happening. That's the first situation we read about. Then in chapter 19, we have this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Now here we've got a a different situation than Apollos, because these individuals don't know about Jesus. It tells me very specifically, uh, they've they've only heard of of John's baptism, Uh, and it says in verse 4, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. They didn't know about Jesus. They only knew John. And so these individuals need a lot more than than Apollos did. They, They haven't been teaching about Jesus. These are different disciples. Disciples strictly of John. It becomes very important from these verses. We find it's very important what you believe. It's not enough to believe that 
Noah built an ark out of obedience to God. It's not enough to believe that God called Abram out of a land of idolatry and gave him certain promises. It's not enough to know that God gave Moses a tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. It's not enough to know that God sent a series of prophets through the Old Testament Scriptures. It's not enough to know that God sent John the Baptist to talk about one day, someday there's one coming who's going to make it all new, who's going to change everything. He will be the perfect servant of the Lord. It's not enough just to know all that and not know who that person is. John the Baptist, if all you know of him is all you have is this anticipation for God doing a big thing. And so Paul makes it very clear that you need to know about this person, Jesus. He also makes it very clear that to be a disciple of this Jesus requires baptism. The two are inseparable. In the book of Acts, it's very clear. There's, there's, it would blow their minds to think that somebody would call themselves a Christian and not be baptized. So if, obviously, I don't know where people are at, but if you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and you not have been baptized, that ought to be a top priority. That's part of a work of obedience to what Christ has commanded. That's what takes place in this particular situation. Let's keep going. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of, the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. By the way, starting at verse 11, this sounds very familiar to where we've been in Acts downstairs in Sunday school. Very familiar to the miracles that the Lord was doing through the Apostle Peter. And then out of these miracles, which attract a lot of attention, out of those miracles, there's going to arise a sinful situation that requires swift and strict discipline, which will cause fear to fall on everybody and God to be glorified. In Peter's case, it was if some people were bringing their sick and their lame to Peter, that even his shadow might fall on them and they would be healed. It was, it was crazy and it was attracting a lot of attention. But then you've got the, on the heels of that, you've got this story where two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira, said, they were doing what a lot of Christians were doing, we're going to sell a, a certain piece of property and we're going to donate all, all the proceeds to that property to the, to the apostles for the distribution of the needy. But they didn't. They did sell the property. And they did not donate some of the proceeds, but not all of the proceeds. And so Peter called them out for lying to the Holy Spirit. And both were struck dead. And it caused great fear to fall upon everybody. And it caused people to glorify God. Now read this, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skeva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's exactly what we read about in Peter's situation. A great miracle attracting lots of attention. A situation that requires this this dramatic discipline that causes people to fear and to glorify God. And then you've got verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In those verses, you get this, this idea how pervasive the witchcraft and the occult is in Ephesus. That those who had, uh, those who were believers are confessing and divulging these secret practices or some of the things that they've held on to. They haven't completely renounced them and they get rid of them in a very dramatic fashion. And it's all worth like, what, 50,000 pieces of silver? Which all of this reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, not of this world, the occultic world, this world that we don't completely understand. I think we're reading about it in those verses in Acts chapter 19. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a silversmith by the name of Demetrius that realizes that what the apostles are teaching, what these Christians are teaching is against his livelihood. And so he creates a riot to try to put a stop to it. But in fact, it fails because this city doesn't want to jeopardize its free status before Rome. And so Paul survives that challenge. And then Paul believes that he's done pretty much all he can do in Ephesus, or all that he wants to do at this time. So Paul will leave Ephesus, and now he'll make this circuit of going all the way back down through areas he's already been. Then he will return. He wants to, I think I've got... He's going to return all the way back home, down to Jerusalem. But he says he wants to meet the Ephesian elders on his way home. Now, he spent close to three years there on his way out, but on his way home, he he doesn't want to stop at Ephesus. He's going to stop at this little town called Miletus, and he calls for the Ephesian elders to come to him and meet with him. I'm on my way back to Jerusalem. I don't have time to stop, but I do want to see you. He spent two and a half, three years with him. So I want you to look at chapter 20, verse 16. Chapter 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now for Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And... From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Paul says, I want you to be alert. There's two threats coming. Threats from without and threats from within. There's false teaching from without. There's false teaching from within. Both will happen at the church at Ephesus. And he gives them a warning. Sometimes the church is is better at identifying the threats from without and not so good at identifying the threats from within. But both are real. And Paul warns the church against both. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by my working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the to the ship. Now, that leads us to the next scene where Paul writes Ephesians a couple years later in 60 or 61. And what is noticeably absent, I would suggest shockingly absent, is any sort of familiarity with the people that he's writing to. It is quite unlike anything Paul's ever written, uh, I think, in all the New Testament. There's no personal greetings. There's no building upon that he'd spent three years with these people and he dearly loved them. I mean, when you read the letters to the Corinthians, you can tell Paul's had history with the Corinthians. And Paul talks about how dearly he loves them. And while they have many teachers, he's their mother, he's their father, he's the one that birthed them to Christ. All that intimacy is lacking from Ephesians. You get no sense that it's even written to the Ephesians because... It was probably never directly written to them exclusively. It's a circuit letter. So that the oldest manuscripts that we have of the book of Ephesians, the words in verse 1, chapter 1 and verse 1, or chapter 1 and verse 2 that is written to Ephesians, are, are missing, are absent. 
It's written to saints. And it was probably started off to, at the, the church at Ephesus. It's the biggest city. It's where Paul spent his most time. So the letter probably started off with the Ephesians, and so it became identified with them, but it didn't stop with them. It moved the circuit, probably through the, at least those seven churches we read about in Revelation, where each church read the letter, and each church put in their own name. And there's no personal greetings, and there's no references to what happened in Ephesus, because that would really not mean a lot to the people at Laodicea, or Colossae, or, or Philadelphia, or Smyrna. So it's a very general letter that started with the Ephesians, but technically it's not written exclusively to the Ephesians. In A.D. 62 or 64, somewhere 62, 63 or 64, Paul writes another letter a couple years later to Timothy. Turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on 991. 991. Paul's first letter to Timothy. And we're getting close to the end here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You know what? The Bible's got plenty of information. I don't need to, I don't need to pull in outside sources what people think might be true when the Bible's already given me so much to think about. So he, he wants Timothy to stay in Ephesus to guard the church. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So it's a guard against false teaching, and the goal is love, to promote love. It's not just what not to do, it's where you want to land. Now fast forward 30 years. Go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. This, in this case, we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, and we're look, going to look at John's recording of Christ's message to the seven churches, starting with the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2. In verse 1, Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at the first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You learn two things from the last snapshot of the church at Ephesus. Paul warned the leaders, the, the elders, guard the church against false teaching. Paul told Timothy, protect the church from false teaching. Revelation chapter 2, the church seems well protected. They've tested those who call themselves apostles. They test these sectarian groups, the Nicolaitans, and they've renounced them. This is not true doctrine. This is not the apostles' doctrine. They're, they're completely faithful on that score. But what was the goal of it all? What did Paul say the goal was? The goal was to promote love. And so the one thing that they have against them is that they left their first love. They protected the church from, from wrong teaching, false doctrine. They were, they were on the straight and narrow, but the love was lacking. And this is probably one of my own biggest beefs with the way people interpret the church at Ephesus. And we interpret it by our culture where we associate love with a feeling. They've left their first love and, and somehow we get the idea that we need to feel a certain way about our relationship with Christ. But I think if you look at the text, you've abandoned your love Remember where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Your love is reflected by your works. It's not how you feel. Lots of people feel good about their walk with God or their relationship with God. They feel spiritual. They feel in tune with God on whatever level, but their works are lacking. And Jesus said, I'll know you love me by your works. It's your obedience that's going to show your love. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience, I'm on the older side of things, my experience has been that when somebody comes to faith in Christ and it's new, you know what their love looks like? It's demonstrated by their works. They can't stop reading and learning the Bible. They can't wait to gather with the church. They are looking for ways to get involved and to participate. They don't feel like, look, I've, put, I've served my time. Like, my, my kids were raised here. I did my time. I served. They can't wait to be a part of the church and to read their Bibles. That's leaving, leaving your first love is not doing those things. It's not really caring about those things. It's tied to your works. So where does all this leave us? Where am I going with all of this? I've gone through all these snapshots Here's, I think, the big takeaway, at least it's the big takeaway for me. And that is, there's never a time in your life where you should not be progressing in your love and understanding and obedience to Christ, your Lord and your Savior. And if I'm not growing and progressing, I'm faltering. And I'm failing. Some of the people I care most about have faltered and failed, and they haven't sustained that all the way to the end. And so my prayer, part of my prayer for myself is that I don't falter and fail at the end and become the person that I don't want to be. You know, my own spiritual mentor, uh, Pastor Wiseman, who I highly regard, who taught me, who taught me the Bible. Uh, I was just talking with Alex, I think it was, or maybe Alex and 
and both of you, Eve, I can't remember exactly about how it, I was at the church. Like, he was so slow going through Romans. You would describe however long you were at his church. Like, when were you there? And I would say, I was at Marv Wiseman's church from Romans 2 to Romans, like, 6. Like, you know, that's how long I was there. You know, you would just, that's how, you, you know, you would describe that experience. He taught God's word verse by verse, book by book. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. Our church is so much modeled after Marv Wiseman's church. You can't imagine it. But Marv Wiseman is not the pastor he used to be, which grieves my heart. And every once in a while, you know, I'll check into his website. He stopped teaching verse by verse. He stopped teaching book by book. He teaches topic by topic. He teaches the church's positions on how to view Scripture. I think there's a world of difference between teaching your positions, how you think you understand Scripture, and just teaching the Bible and letting Scripture come to you. So I, I pray to God that I don't become that person. I want If I can't teach God's Word verse by verse and book by book, I think it's time to pack it in because somebody else needs to take my place. You know, my mom died this week. Uh, she died on Wednesday. Uh, my mom, I was not reconciled to my mom at the end. That grieves me. That grieves me. I have many warm memories with my mom. You know, from childhood, she has always loved me fiercely. I've never doubted that. She's never stopped loving me fiercely. But she chose to walk in a path that was unreconciled with my family. That grieves me. That grie- it, it partly angers me that so much of our family has diminished because of a choice that didn't need to be made. And she was not interested in olive branches. And that grieves me. So my prayer is that I would stay on track until the end and grow and not falter. And it's only by the grace of God that it'll ever happen. Because if I think I, I'm a, I, I can't happen to me, it invariably will. My prayer for all of you would be the same. You know, I hate to say it, but Larry's a little bit older than I am. So my prayer for Larry is that he doesn't falter because I'm following Larry. Like, I go to Sunday school, not just so that I don't have to teach. I'm going to learn from Larry. But my prayer for Larry is that he doesn't falter, because it can happen to any of us. And we're fools if we think it can't. What are your comments and questions? Yes, Theron. Right. Well, my brief comment would be, Jesus was, I mean, I'm quite convinced Jesus wasn't crucified at 33 AD uh, because he wasn't born at zero. Jesus was probably born about 4 BC. And so he probably died about AD 30. Uh, you know, whoever came up with a big master timeline way back in the day meant well and uh, contributed a lot of good things, but but the chart's off a little bit. So I think Jesus probably was born at the latest about 4 B.C., which means he died, was crucified A.D. 29 or 30. But it's, you know, you're right. It's We're only talking a margin of a few years. Uh, it's not a huge deal breaker one way or the other, but the timeline is off a little bit. Yeah. Somebody else? And my timeline is probably off, too. I... I spend way too much. I mean, I'm an OCD person, which I'm sure is a shock to Sarah in the back there. 
But, uh, you know, I spend way too much time trying to nail down these dates. You know, I'm reading. I spend way too much time trying to figure out these dates. But I want to teach as accurately as I can. But at the end of the day, I'm like, they probably don't care that I may be off a year or two. But if I can nail it down, I'm going to try. And so I did. That's what I came up with. So that's Ephesus. Now we're going to build on that when we start Ephesians next week, which starts with quite the bang. Anybody else thought of comment? Uh, well, uh, Maxine? I appreciate that. I appreciate it. There is no, no one of us that doesn't need prayer. Uh, the beauty of the church, I can't, in fact, I, one of the things that's amazing, you know, I told you, Paul, the absence of personal greetings and things in this letter, which is kind of unusual, because Paul names a lot of people in a lot of letters, a lot of, like this co-worker, this co-laborer, I left this person here. I mean, he names a lot of people. Out of all those individuals Paul names, how many of them does he call a saint? And the answer is, so far as I can tell, None. Now, we call like, you know, St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, St. John. That, But Paul doesn't call any individual a saint. But you know what he does? He calls the gathered believers together saints all the time. Whatever I am meant to be as a Christian will happen within the community of God's people. It will happen within the community of saints. I was never called to go it alone. And if I think I've arrived at a place where I can go it alone and I don't need the church, I am failing. Now, I realize there are times in life, depending on circumstances, an individual may not be able to gather with the church. I think God's grace accommodates that. But if I'm just making a choice that church, gathering with the church is just not that important, I am wrong. I am wrong. Paul writes to the saints. Not the saint. Uh, Darren, did you have a second remark? Conversion at AD 35. That's what I came up with. AD 35. Give or take. Give or take. Let's let's sing a benediction and we'll be done. Uh, Turning your hymnal. I think it's 438.